Welcome to this week's episode of the JJ Reddick Podcast. I have a great guest for you today. He is David Solomon, the new CEO of Goldman Sachs. David and I have known each other for a little over two years. We've tried to stay in touch. Uh, We had met uh, a couple years ago. I had the opportunity to speak at a conference in Napa Valley uh, that Goldman Sachs was, was hosting for tech and media CEOs. Um, I'm not really sure why I was on a panel that day, but um, got invited. Uh, David and I spoke after all the panels were done and we've kept in touch. And in fact, uh, about a year and a half ago, I did an article with GQ and they asked me who would be my dream podcast guests. And I believe I mentioned Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and David Solomon. So I got one of my three guests on today. David has worked at Goldman Sachs since 1999. He was recently named the successor to Lloyd Blankfein, and he assumed his role as CEO on October 1st of this year. Uh, And I'm happy to present our conversation. Here's my conversation with Goldman Sachs CEO, David Solomon. appreciate you doing this. Um, sure. So uh, for for background for the listeners, um, you and I actually do know each other. Yes. Sometimes I do these podcasts and I'm essentially uh, cold calling, just showing up to people's offices or people's homes and asking them to come on the pod. Uh-huh. But uh, we have a little bit of background. We, we met uh, about two and a half years ago. Uh, in Napa at a at a Goldman conference that I, I actually got to speak at. Uh, we chatted a little bit afterwards and have exchanged text messages uh, and got together this summer for for a nice meal. And uh, we've been trying to get this pod done. So I appreciate you doing this. Absolutely, I'm I'm, I'm thrilled to do it. And I've you know I've enjoyed um, I've enjoyed getting to know you a little bit. I really enjoyed that dinner this summer. You know, also meeting your wife. Yeah. And um, and uh, and so I'm 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 thrilled to do this. We'll talk about wine some, I'm sure, but uh, <laughs> the dinner this summer was uh, probably one of the most epic, you know, sort of wine tastings that I've ever had in my life. So well, that's I appreciate great. It was, you it and was, our friend it was, Jeff. Uh, it was it was yeah. it was uh, it was five five great people sitting around a table having a great conversation and and drinking some delicious wine, and that's that's one of the things that's nice. You know, food and wine gives you an opportunity to share with people and and also to talk about what's going on in the world, what's going on in life, and it's. Yeah. Uh, it's, I think it's, I think it's something that, that enriches all of us. My wife, Chelsea commented afterwards that, uh, normally when she goes out to dinner with me, you know, I'm, I'm sort of the rock star. No, you were <laughs> the, that, you no, were the rock in, star. In that room, uh, <laughs> it, out in the Hamptons, uh, you, you, my friend were, were the rock star. Yeah, well, uh, that's, that's just because the crowd was too old to really know much about <laughs> basketball, but, uh. But in my eyes, you were the rock star. I always, I always like to ask sort of the non non sports guests. No offense, sure. um, just sort of a, a a brief synopsis of of your own sort of sports fandom and you know what teams you root for, what what sports you're interested in. Sure. So I am. Um, you know, I grew up in the New York area. I grew up out in Westchester County, and I I you know I was born in 1962. So I think that my you know my first real exposure to sports in a way that I remember was when I was, you know, just turning eight years old and, um, and Joe Namath and the New York Jets won the Super Bowl. Um, and Joe Namath, you know, at that point in time was just a legendary figure and, you know, the buildup and the unexpected nature, you know, of that win at that point in time, you know, even though I was eight years old, I remember it vividly. And I think it's what really turned me on, you know, to sports. And it's my clear, 
my first clear memory, you know, of really, you know, being enamored. Now it, it, um, you know, it followed very quickly with the Mets winning the World Series. And so, you know, when you, when you kind of put that all in perspective, you know, growing up in New York, I would say my early days were, were shaped, you know, being a, a Jets fan and then a Mets fan. And then, of course, in 1970, in the spring of 1970, the Knicks won the world championship. Um, you know, with 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 Willis Reed, with Willis Reed and David Busher and Bill Bradley, um, and um, and Dick Barnett, and just really just an epic, you know, epic team. And I would say that as a New Yorker, my whole life, that was the pinnacle of New York sports. And it's been all down. It's been all downhill. It's been all downhill. It's been all downhill since then. And so, you know, I've always been a I've always been a Jets fan. Um, I actually had, I have two brothers. My dad was a huge Giants fan. You know, he grew up outside a huge Giants fan. Um, and one of my brothers was a Giants fan and the other brother was a Jets fan. And I've never really, you know, I've never really warmed to the Giants, but I've become over the years a Mets and a Yankees fan. Um, I'm a- um, Well, you've got to entertain clients. You, well, it's- You know, it's, and they want to go to the Yankees. But thing. I also, I, you know, it's, it's been, um, I, can, I can appreciate, you know, I can appreciate, you know, the greatness of, you know, of that franchise- and, you know, being a part of New York and really realizing how wonderful it is, you know, to have that kind of a franchise over such a long period of time, you know, in our city. And that doesn't mean that the Mets aren't a great franchise and there hasn't, there hasn't been, there haven't been periods of time where, you know, their extraordinary, you know, play hasn't really, you know, warmed the city. Yeah. But, um, but it's just fun to be in New York. And look, I'm a Rangers fan. I, I, um, I have a picture that my kids tracked down. I was at game seven of the 1994 Stanley Cup when the Rangers won the cup. I had, you know, I'd always loved hockey. I was at the game and I happened to be eight to 10 rows behind the goal the Rangers were defending in the third period. And they kind of all, you know, swept in, um, you know, right there. And there's a, there's a very famous picture of that moment, you know, taken. And my kids found the picture and blew it up. And, you know, you can see me with one of my friends, you know, standing in the crowd there with, with hair because it was, yeah, yeah. it was quite a number of years ago. Um, and so that's, I mean, it's a long-winded way of just saying, you know, I, I, I enjoy New York sports. I have Knicks tickets and go to Knicks games, you know, regularly. I have Yankees tickets, go to Yankees games regularly, but I also go to a couple of Mets games a season. And I go to a few hockey games a season. I go to a few Jets games a season. And I'd go to more because I really enjoy it, but with everything you've got going on, sure. you know, it's, you know, their choices. Sure. Yeah. It's so interesting that your, your first sports memory was of the Jets winning the Super Bowl. Yeah. Um, I've talked about this before on my podcast, but you know, my first sports memory was uh, Christian Leitner hitting the shot to beat Kentucky. Yeah. And I became a Duke fan that yeah. night. You know, I've yeah. always, I've always rooted for winners. <laughs> Well, they are, they are, they are a winner. That's an, that's talk about an extraordinary franchise. Yeah. I mean, that's, 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 that's extraordinary. Coach K is extraordinary. He is, yeah. he is. And learned a ton from him. For the, for the listener who doesn't necessarily know your background, and I'll go into yeah. this, I'll have gone into this, some of this in the intro, but just kind of take us through, you, you've been in the financial industry for 35 years, basically. And uh, take us through sort of your your career path and how you got to this point now as as the CEO of Goldman Sachs. Sure. So I am um, I you know I grew up as we said in Westchester and I I you know was fortunate enough to go off to a terrific liberal arts college in upstate New York, Hamilton College. Um, and I did not I did not go there with a goal of going into the financial world. Um, I really thought I was going to go to law school. I you know I I. I wasn't really sure what I would do, but I, you know, I went to Hamilton. I had a great experience there. I studied political science 
and I'm in American history. And I kind of fell into my first job because all my friends up at school were all coming to New York. And in you know this period of time, 1984, the financial world was kind of opening up. And a number of the financial institutions were offering these terrific training programs to come get a job, get paid, and get some more financial education. And so my first job, I was hired at the Irving Trust Company, which was a commercial bank. Um, I think probably the most prominent thing about it was its address was number one Wall Street, a building that still stands there today. Um, is, is, um, I, I went to work and went through this training program for a year. And it was really like going to business school while you know, while working. And so it was, it was a good program. You know, went through it for a year and then I got placed into a bank in the job and I was actually applying to go to business school. And in 1986, uh, I got hired by Drexel Burnham Lambert to work uh, under the business that was run by Mike Milken. And, you know, that business was exploding at that period of time, the business for junk bonds, as they were called then, or high yield bonds. It was a new business. And it was really extraordinary to be a young person you know, in that business, I think we were probably given more rope than we should have had. It was very, very entrepreneurial, uh, but it was a very, very good experience. I learned a lot, uh, but then Drexel Burnham promptly went out of business in 1990. And, you know, that was actually something that was interesting because it showed me the fragility of financial markets, financial firms. It was a very, very quick lesson um, and all of that. And so I continued along in my career. At this point, I was in. I'd been working for five or six years. I hadn't gone to graduate school, but I really enjoyed it. I think it was my experience at uh, at Drexel really, really showed me that this particular profession was one that was very entrepreneurial. Every day was different. You had an ability to connect with clients in all different ways and really have an impact on what they were doing, their business. Um, and I really, I really enjoyed that. And I found that I, um, I thrived in it. After Drexel Burnham, I wound up going to work for Bear Stearns. And there's no pattern developing here. Um, but again, you know, the, the, the fragility of this. And I, um, I, I had a bunch of success at Bear Stearns that led me to, um, to relatively senior positions there at a, at a relatively young age. And I really thought I'd spend, you know, the bulk of my career there. But in the late 90s, I was competing for a piece of business that actually was to finance the development of Sheldon Adelson's uh, casino business in Las Vegas when he was first developing it. And I was competing with some people from Goldman Sachs for that piece of business. And we wound up doing it together. And at the end of that, uh, the team at Goldman Sachs started recruiting me to come to Goldman Sachs. And so after a lot of back and forth and to and fro in 1999, at 37 years old, I decided to come to Goldman Sachs. And um, it, it turned out to be a great decision, especially given you know the history of Bear Stearns nine years later. Um, but it was a great decision because it was a long-term decision. Um, and it was putting me, you know, it was putting me in a position of working for what I believe was at the time and is, you know, the, the, the greatest financial firm and just a lot of runway to do things on a much broader scale. And, um, and I'm, I'm really, really glad I made the decision. You, you mentioned a few reasons why you were sort of initially attracted and initially enjoyed those first few years working at Drexel. Are the reasons that you stayed in this industry different than the reasons you got into it? The reason I got into it is I need a job. <laughs> and um, and I, you know, I, I'd like to go back and say that I was so thoughtful about all the different jobs I could have taken. Um, but as I said to you, you know, my friends were headed to New York and in the early 1980s, you know, if you were coming to New York, there was kind of advertising, there was retail, um, and there was, um, there was finance. 
I mean, that's that's a generalization, of course, but those were kind of the big buckets where young people, if they went to New York to go get a job and get trained to get some experience, you know, those those were what you would do. And so I stumbled into it. But my reason for staying was I, I had lots of opportunities along the way to go do other things, but I really enjoyed the diversity of the day-to-day experience, the interaction with people, which is constant, um, the entrepreneurial nature of the work that I talked about. And, you know, I found that I really thrived. One of the things I found and I discovered is I really thrived in, in a larger environment. In other words, there are things about being a larger institution that are very appealing. Um, there are also things that are very appealing about being a smaller, you know, entrepreneurial business. But as, as, as I worked along, I found that I really liked the network of people, the way you learned from all these people kind of the apprenticeship culture that exists in an organization like this. So you've got people with a lot more experience that feel compelled to pull you along and teach you. And I felt that I really enjoyed it and I kept learning and I kept doing more and there just wasn't a compelling reason, you know, to go do something else. You know, one of the things that happens is young people come to see me here and there's, there's, you know, there's a shifting nature of how young people think about work. They're much more focused today on what's next Mm -hmm. than I was you know, when I was in my 20s, for example, and somebody recently came into my office and said, I want to talk to you about what I should be doing next or how I should progress my career. And I said, okay, tell me about how you're doing. How, how do you like your job? And she said to me, oh, I love it. It's great. I said, okay, do you like the person you're working for? I'm working for this woman who's extraordinary, really extraordinary. I'm learning from her. I really admire her. She's teaching me a lot. I said, that's great. How about the kind of work you're doing? Oh, it's fascinating. I mean, you know, the days fly by. I'm so interested in what I'm doing. I'm really enjoying it. How about the people that you work with? Great group. We work hard together, but then we're out on the weekends. It's really wonderful. And I said, so what's the problem? And she said, well, I'm just thinking, you know, what should I do next? I'm like, go back to work and enjoy it. You know, very few people are ever at a point in time where they like who they're working for. They like the work they're doing. They like the people that they're working with. If you're lucky enough to get that, go ride it. And I felt like through my career, I had a lot of that. And it kept me, it kept me moving forward. I think a little of that is just human nature. Maybe it's just not the younger generation. I, I, I don't consider myself sort of part of that younger generation, but like if you were to ask me all those same questions, yeah. I would probably give you all those same answers. Like, I absolutely love what I do. The work is fulfilling. Uh, I love the organization I'm with, but I think part of me is always, it, I've always been this way, but it's part of me is always looking for that next thing. Like what is next? Some of it is just feeling unease. I think about uncertainty in life, um, you know, beyond just sort of making a career choice. It's, it's that uncertainty. Well, it's, I think you're right. There's human nature to that for sure. And I do think there's, there's a difference between you know working through a career in finance and being a professional basketball player. <laughs> That's there, true. There is, for good or for bad, there is a time limit. That's true. On the ability yeah. to play professional basketball at the level that that you play it, unless and you you're know Vince it. Carter. Well, <laughs> okay, maybe Vince Carter is a different story, and he is. But um, but at some point in time, you're still going to be a relatively young yeah. person who needs to have a second chapter. Yeah. And, and so, you know, that creates perspective, but I do agree with you. There's a human nature to look, we look for this and people strivers, you know, that strive for what's next, what's better. How can I improve, yeah. you know, tend to do very well professionally in almost anything they do. And so you look for strivers a little bit and there's a little bit, there's definitely human nature in that. One of the first things you ever said to me, I think in our very first conversation a couple of years ago was, was that very notion of, of that 
end period as an athlete and then still having roughly 30 years, 35 years to have a whole second career. Yeah. As I get closer, right, to the to the end point, and I'm not there yet, but as I get closer, I think about it more and more. And, you know, part of me recognizes, you know, that I've I've built up sort of equity in the basketball world. Right. And and, you know, I could pursue a different career in media or front office or coaching or whatever it may be. And the other part of me has no interest in doing that and yeah. wants to find something new and, and, and exciting. And I think one of the challenges, not just for me, but for any athlete that, that finishes their career, and, and really I've talked to friends that have done this in the last few years, is they want to do something different, but they struggle, I guess, with sort of that credibility issue because you're lacking... Uh, 15 years of experience, you know, you're starting at the bottom again. And I think, that, I think that's really hard for it's athletes. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's definitely challenging, but it's also, it's one of the things that when, when we first met that really intrigued me about you um, and, and kind of attracted me that I wanted, I wanted to learn more about you. You're incredibly intellectually curious. And, you know, even though, you know, at the point that we met, I mean, you're in the middle of an accelerating career. Yeah. You know, you had an intellectual curiosity around things away from sports um, and away from what you were doing that was very, very high. Um, and I think, you know, I think that's an that's an asset or an attribute that'll help you in whatever you choose to do next. And sure. candidly, it'll open doors up to you, sure. you know, to give you other opportunities. One of the, the other thing you mentioned this summer, and I, I think I was I was sort of going to ask you about your own skill set mm-hmm. and how that has evolved uh, throughout your career. But, you know, one of the words or two of the words you you mentioned this summer at dinner was sort of for an athlete, diligence, discipline, and those things sort of carry over into any world. And I think the curiosity part is huge too. Listen to you on a, several podcasts and read a ton of stuff on you. And I think you're a curious person as well. And one of the things that curious people do is they read, they like to basically go all in on something. Sure. And, and that's, and that's something that, uh, that you do as well. Yeah. I, I, look, I think, um, I think there are all sorts of skills that can help you professionally. Um, and there's no question that, you know, being intense and focused and purposeful about what you do are really important things when you're building a career over a long period of time. And it's a marathon, not a sprint. Um, and so you, um, you know, I, I think those things, I think those things have, have helped me. Um, but I also think it's really not about just success in your career. It's about success in your life and really having a life that's rich and fulfilling. And to, you know, to do that, especially if you're fortunate the way we are to be given, you know, to have opportunities to really, to really live to the fullest you know, the more you can add to your life, the more you enrich it. And part of it is you enrich it by you meet new people and different people through different experiences and different things that you focus on. But I've really recognized that it's this long road and you go down it and there are different stages and different phases. You know, clearly when I, when my, my kids are now, I have two daughters who are in their twenties, but when they were younger, there was a lot of time, you know, spent focused on them. You know, now that they're older, that frees up a whole basket of time that allows you to pursue other interests. Yeah. You know, in addition to whatever I can't you're pursuing wait for that professionally, time. yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's um, don't don't wish it away because no, it's know. interesting. As you get there, I look back and I'm like, wow, where did that go? That went so quickly, and and it's not that I felt like I missed it, but I'd like to go back and experience some mm-hmm. more of it again, and I'd also like to experience some more of it again 
with a context of being a little bit older, more mature, and more evolved. And so don't don't wish it away. But it's um, no, I'm 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 hoping for self sufficiency at this point. Yeah, <laughs> just like the ability to put your underwear on in the morning yeah, well, that's, without that's a, that's a without good a day. It happens quickly. I mean, I remember <laughs> I remember the days. You know, I'd be so tired from a long week at work, and then. And you know, it was five thirty in the morning, and the kids were already running around the house, so they're pulling you out of bed. And that was this morning, whatever. Okay, and but then all of a sudden, you know, I remember it was like nothing, and it would be Saturday morning, and I'd sleep in till eight or eight thirty, and I'd get up and I'd go to the gym, and I'd come back from the gym, I'd sit and I'd have coffee, and I'd read the paper, and I'd look at my watch. It would be eleven o'clock, and everybody was still asleep. (laughs) So you know, it changes. It changes. um, It changes very, 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 uh, very, very quickly, and. And no matter what, it, it feels as you live life, it feels like there's a lot going on. But as you look back, it's like, wow, you know, where did it go? But still, to your point, and I think it's an important point, you know, even now, you know, I look and I'm 57 years old, but, you know, God willing, I'm healthy. You know, I can have a whole, besides just what I'm doing now, you know, I've got, you know, 30, 40 years to have other chapters um, and there's lots to do. And it's it's great to find things that you like, you're passionate about, both professionally and personally, and really go after them. One of the things, you know, you, you were kind of bringing it up now, but one of the things you are a big proponent of is, is having this work-life balance. And you've talked about it in terms of the culture and the the work environment here at Goldman Sachs. Um, but I, I, I do I do feel like, at least in my life, and, and when I look at sort of um, high-level people, um, there's a little bit of a contradiction because I am singularly focused on something. I would even use the word at times obsessed. That's why you're really good at what you do. (laughs) Yeah. But, and, and, and at the same time, if I don't allow myself other outlets, I end up resenting the very thing that I'm really enthusiastic and, and passionate about. And it's this weird sort of balance that I, I have to live. And I, I think, you know, in talking at least to athletes, I, I think we all sort of struggle with that. You used the word, the words earlier, intense and purposeful. And so you're, 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 you're doing this. And as a young person, especially who's just starting out in their career and has these goals and doesn't necessarily have the resources yet, or the freedom, the rope mm-hmm. to sort of have that balance. It's it's a it's a huge challenge. It is it is a challenge, and I don't want to in any way come across as not recognizing that um, that you know, especially as you're starting out, it's a lot harder you know to have the yeah. opportunities and to do other things. But you know what I'd like to reflect back is I worked I worked I'm still working very hard, but I worked very hard for a long long oh, yeah. time to put myself in a position where the opportunities that are available to me, both personally and professionally are, you know, more varied. And, you know, it's just, again, you know, there's very little in life that's easy. Things that are worthwhile come from investment and time, and there'll be failures and bumps along the way. Uh, Resiliency is important. You know, how when you fall, because everybody falls and everybody screws up, you dust yourself, you get up and dust yourself off. And, um, you know, I just, and I, you know, I, I'm, I'm very lucky here to have the opportunity to work with so many talented young people. It's one of the great things about Goldman Sachs. You know, over 70% of our 40,000 employees are millennials. It's, it's a young firm at the end of the day. And they're, they're so, so talented, so, so motivated. You know, such a privilege to work with them. 
but when I, when I'm trying to give some advice, you know, one piece of advice is you've got these goals, you've got these ambitions and it's going to be hard. They're going to be bumps. There's going to be ups and downs, but you don't have to have all the answers right away. You don't have to get to the finish line right away. You don't have to know what's next right away. You don't have to know where it's all going to go. Just live it and try to enjoy it as much as you can. I wrote down this saying um, a few years ago. It was around the time that I had my first son. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, essentially, it was uh, less time now, more time later. Meaning, you know, put in put in the investment, put in the work now on, on my NBA career. Um, much to the chagrin of Chelsea during the off season. Mm-hmm. Um, we still battle about that, but I train how I train. Yeah. And that's, there's, there's no, really no negotiation there. And then in the hopes that, you know, as my kids grow, um, I will be able to sort of have more time with them. Because that, right now that's, to me is my biggest challenge is that I really enjoy being a dad and uh, it's my favorite thing in the world. And yeah. and being on the road, commuting back and forth, it it presents some challenges. We, we can't talk about work-life balance on this podcast without me mentioning and asking you about um, music. Mm-hmm. You are a DJ. I, would you say it's on the side or would you say it's, it's like it's, a second I, profession? I would, it's your, no, it's your not a profession. <laughs> I would say it's, I would, I, I would, I would say it's a hobby. Okay. Um, I would say it's a hobby and it's a hobby because I enjoy it. Yeah. Um, but it is, it is, it is, um, it's far from a second profession, <laughs> but I, I might say that if I was, you know, if I was a lot younger and I hadn't chosen this path, it could have been a fun profession. Sure. Um, but it's a hard profession, yeah. uh, you know, for sure. But it's, it's, it's a hobby. And, you know, you were talking about the intensity of your training, your work, and sometimes you need to do other things. One of the things I love about it when I'm actually doing it is I'm just focused on that. I've got a lot going on in my head seven days a week, you know, related to work. And, you know, when I do this, you know, it's, I'm focused on this and, you know, it kind of clears my head, which, which I think is important. Do you remember the first time that you played a set in front of people? Yeah, absolutely. Because it wasn't that long ago. This is, this is something yeah. I took up you yeah. know, later, later in life. Um, and so the first time I played a set as a DJ in front of people was about four years ago. Yeah. Um, I, um, I've been very fortunate to be introduced to Paul Oakenfold. Um, and, um, and, you know, we had developed a relationship uh, and he had introduced me to some people who had been teaching me how, you know, over a number of years to DJ. And it was really as a hobby, you know, on Sunday afternoons. Um, and, uh, and I did it just as a hobby and I did it for my own entertainment, but I had never done it in front of people. And at some point, you know, he had heard that I actually was developing some skills. And so in a very, very generous way, he was very generous about this. He called me and he said, look, I'm playing in New York. I'm playing at Marquee, you know, in New York. And, you know, why don't you come and take- don't know that is a nightclub. (laughs) (laughs) Why don't you, why don't you come take the first hour? And I said to him, well, I've, you know, I've never done this. And he said, look, you know, it's an hour, pick like 10 tracks you want to mix together, practice a little bit. And, you know, he said, look, it's going to be from 11 to 12 when the club opens, there won't be a lot of people there. (laughs) So you don't have to worry about whether or not it's, it's any good. So I, you know, I show up and, um, at 11 o'clock when the club opened there, my daughters were there with a few of their friends. That was about it. But by 12 o'clock, it was, it was pretty busy and I was hooked. I mean, yeah. it was just the, the ability to see the music influence people and see people respond to it. It was, it was cool. And so I started working at it and I started doing it, you know, casually, you know, once a month. And then because of my job, it got written about. 
And, you know, at that point I said, well, I either have to work at it a little bit more and really put a little bit more into it or I have to stop. And I, you know, I decided, you know what, I like this. Yeah. I know it's different than what, you know, what, a, what somebody in my professional position might do, but you know, why shouldn't I? And, um, and so it, it's a hobby. I do it, you know, once a month, once every six weeks, um, I'm producing some music, which has been very, very cool. Yeah. To learn about that process and to go into a studio and, and remix music and produce some music. And it's just, it's a great outlet. And generally the time I get to do it, I do it Sunday afternoons and, you know, I do a lot of traveling. And so, you know, you're flying around on airplanes and, and, you know, I used to, when I was done working on a plane, I used to watch television shows and movies and I still do some of that, but now, you know, I also curate music, play with music. And so it's, it's been a great outlet for me. It's been a lot of fun. I think it's really as, you know, as a, um, as a business professional, it's also, I think, connected me a little bit to a lot of the younger people that I work with, you know, maybe makes me a little bit more accessible to them. Sure. And, and, uh, the <clears throat> night you played at Marquee, did you have your moniker? Already, you, I didn't. That, but you do have well, a moniker, I, I, and people I can actually, find your music on Spotify, right? Yeah, you can. You can find. Um, I, you know, I've got one track that's been released on Spotify. Yeah. Although I've got another track that's an original track I'm going to release soon. Right. You know, up on SoundCloud, um, yeah. I've got a couple of. I've got a couple of uh, of hour long mixes that give you an indication of kind of you know house music you know I play. Um, but um, it takes a lot of work to curate that stuff and put it up, and I don't have a lot of time, which is why you know it's it's. It's episodic. Sure. Uh, but it's- D DJ Saul, right? D Saul. D Saul. D Saul. DJ D Saul. Yeah. I, I had a, I was into rap music. Uh -huh. And I had a, my rap name was J Red. Also not incredibly creative. Not incredibly creative. <laughs> I, I will not, I will not take the, and it's, it's actually, it's interesting. One of my daughter's friends, you know, we were, we were chatting about this, sure. you know, when it started and I needed a, I needed a DJ moniker. Actually, I think I, I put it together for that time when I went to play at Marquee. Okay, I mean, it yeah, would have been, yeah. been advertised or anything, but it was just, and one of my daughter's friends, well, you know, you're D-Sol, just, just use D-Sol. And I was like, okay, you know, we, we refer, one of my daughters is K-Sol, one of my daughters is C-Sol, so. Makes sense. Uh, you know, it was, it was simple enough. For all the, um, the young people out there that vacation in the Hamptons, they probably know what Gurney's is. Gurney's is a, is a resort in, uh, in Montauk and you played a set there this summer. I was trying to make it, but my family was with me. So I apologize. I would no reason, love, no love reason to, to apologize in the future. Um, on a more serious note, I want to, I want to sort of ask you about, um, leadership and, um, first of all, just in terms of the characteristics, uh, that you see again and again in great leaders and what characteristics great leaders have, but also how your own, because you've, you've been in a position of leadership since your early 30s, I want to say, based on your bio. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and just how your, your own leadership style and your thoughts on leadership have evolved over the last uh, 25 or 30 years. Yeah, well, it, 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 um, it evolves a lot and you learn. And I think one of the things that, that you have to do when you're in a position of leadership is you've got to be watching and learning from other people constantly. And it's, you know, it's interesting that we're talking about this because just yesterday, um, I did a talks at GS, which is our, you know, yeah. our, our talk series with General Stanley McChrystal, um, who's just written a book on leadership that I think is a very, you know, very, very interesting book because he, he actually puts forward a thesis that I think is a very interesting thesis that we have a view of leaders. You know, we put leaders up on a pedestal and we view them a certain way, but leaders like all of us are just human beings. They're fallible. They get a bunch of things right. They get a bunch of things wrong, but 
you know, myths kind of arrive around, around certain leaders. And, um, and those myths can evolve over time as you understand things better. And he talks, you know, about a range of people um, from George Washington to Robert E. Lee to Coco Chanel and, um, and Walt Disney. And he talks about, you know, the leadership they provided in doing the things they did. But also, if you actually kind of peel it back and look, while they were great leaders, they were also fallible as human beings and they, they weren't always great in what they did. And so, you know, I think one of the things about leadership is you're going to get some things right, you're going to get some things wrong. Um, and you've got to be willing to learn, change your view, be open, and you've got to figure out how to listen. Um, and, um, and one of the things just being, you know, kind of critical or observant of myself, I'd say I'm a much better listener at 57, you know, than I was at 37. And, you know, I can, I can be, you know, very strident, you know, very opinionated. Um, but I, I also, I change my mind, um, and I'm willing to change my mind. I'm willing to say that I'm wrong. You know, even if I had been very, you know, forceful, you know, about a point of view. Um, and, and, you know, I just, I just think you realize when you're, when you're given one of these jobs that you do have to set tone, but boy, you've got to be open and you've got to be flexible and you've got to be willing to understand you're going to get a lot of things right and a lot of things wrong and how you adapt and adjust to the things you get wrong, really important. How you, how you respond to adversity, you know, really important. And so there's no right way. And I'm still learning. We also, we being the 76ers, were recently visited by a general. Um, mm -hmm. we, we typically do a few sort of guest speakers uh, throughout the season. And General Dempsey uh, came and spoke to us um, last week, actually. And first of all, he's, he's brilliant, but he gave a great talk. And the thing that he said that really stuck with me was as a leader exerting your influence versus exerting your authority. And I think as I've gotten older and I'm still got a lot to learn on leadership and I've both become a leader, but also watched other leaders. I think that's the thing that I have most appreciated about great leaders is that they exert their influence and not necessarily authority, not necessarily this is the way we're going to do things, but you mentioned flexibility, right? That, that, that ability to sort of adapt and listen um, and having the emotional intelligence to not manipulate, but influence people to, to sort of see things your way. You got, you've got to, I think it's, I think the language he uses is great. I think you have to bring people along. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so you have to, you have to use your influence. There, there are times when a leader has to make decisions and the decisions aren't always going to be popular. One of your jobs is to listen to lots of different points of view, but ultimately, invariably, there are places where you have to decide, turn left, turn right. And, um, and you have to make that decision. And generally, when you make those decisions, there are going to be people on turn left and there are going to be people on the turn right side. And your job is to listen to it all, make the decision, but then bring everybody along. So when the decision's made, if you decide to turn left, everybody goes in that direction. It's one of the things I've been thinking a lot about here as we're evolving you know, certain things in our business is there are things that I'd want to go faster on. But just to your point, I'm trying to exert my influence, but I'm trying to get the collective leadership group sure. to move in that direction and to really embrace it. And, um, and if you can do that, you know, you're just going to be in a better place. And so I, you know, I think that that concept of, you know, exerting influence, but not forcing it is a, right. is a really, is a really nuanced skill.
Do you think that there is a greatest strength or most important sort of um, characteristic of yourself as a leader? You know, look, I think I think all leaders are different. Everybody yeah. everybody has a different everybody has a different style. You know, I think I've benefited at the firm in my leadership style for being direct and candid, but fair. And I think about that a lot. And, you know, people have said that to me, you know, sometimes you know, you're know you very direct, you're very candid, but you're fair. And so as long as they say, but you're fair, I feel like I have the balance right. Yeah. If they were just saying you're direct and candid, but they weren't also saying you're fair, you know, I might, I might say, well, you know, maybe you've got to adjust a little bit. And so, you know, look, I think, um, I think you gain, you know, if you work in an organization, you gain, you know, a reputation over time. And one of the things that's interesting about reputations is, you know, a lot of it has to do with perception. And so perceptions develop, some of which are right and true and some of which aren't. And one of the things you have to do as a leader is you've got to be, you've got to be open to kind of hearing what the perceptions are, deciding which ones are right and you want to live with and which ones aren't right and you want to change. And, you know, I do think that leaders can change. I do think they can evolve. And I think one of the things that's helped me as a leader and as a human being in this organization, I've evolved, you know, over the 20 years I've been here. And I think if you're not evolving and you're not moving forward, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to lead an organization. My most recent podcast was with uh, Jimmy Butler, my new teammate with the uh-huh. 76ers. And we actually were talking about leadership. And I think one of the things that's hard for an athlete is being, I would say, too direct and too candid uh, in the heat of the moment. Mm-hmm. And because the emotions are running so high during a game, it's it's hard to sort of dial it back. And so there is this sort of element of emotional intelligence uh, after the fact and following up with people and being like, hey, uh, probably shouldn't have spoken to you that way in that situation. But that that to me is one of the real challenges within a game of sort of managing people uh, is just taking that emotion out of it. Yeah, well, I can assure you the level of intensity and the emotion that I see on the basketball court during games, yeah. that's not typically the day-to-day here. Yeah. You know, we have, we have more of an ability to take a breath. It's not, you know, it's not happening real time. It's not on the clock, you know, the same way. But I, but I can see how that's complicated because I just, you know, one of the things that's so exciting about, you know, about live sports is the emotion, the passion, and the intensity of the moment. And I think in, you know, in most of the things we do professionally, you've got more of an ability to kind of absorb and think, you know, everything doesn't have to be now. Right. And, um, and that, that gives you an ability to be thoughtful about how you proceed. I want to bring up the issue of control. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as an athlete, there is so much that is out of our control. And so uh, I, we, we talked about this briefly at dinner, but you know, the, the, the preparation, right? The training in the off season, your diet, you know, all those things. In control. Yeah, th- those are the things that I can control. Yeah. In your job, well, for anyone really working in the financial industry, uh, there's all, sort of th- all sorts of things that are out of your control. Political climate, natural disasters, the markets sort of do what they wanna do sometimes. Absolutely, that's sometimes all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> True. Uh, do, do you struggle with that? Are you able to sort of let go of, of you, you, any notion it's, it's of just, control? It's, it's the reality. It's the reality of, well, you don't let go of any notion because it's, it's the reality of, of, um, 
of our job and what we do. And, and the way I actually think about it, and I think about it this way, there are a whole bunch of things that you can control and there are things you can't control. On the things that you can control, you have to be incredibly buttoned up, focused, and right with a real level of excellence, you know, execution excellence on everything that you can control. And if you do that, you're going to be better equipped to deal with what you can't control and what the world throws at you. And it's, it's interesting. I mean, it's one of the analogies, and I said this, there's a point in my career where I ran our equity capital markets business, which is a business that takes companies public or raises equity for companies. And when you talk to an entrepreneur or a CEO, a founder of a business that was going to go public, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd always say one of the things about an IPO or taking a company public is there are a whole bunch of things, a couple of hundred things that you have to do that you can control. And our job, if we're working with you to do it, is to make sure that we identify all those for you and we help you have them all buttoned up and executed with the highest level of excellence. No matter what, there's going to be a whole bunch of stuff that happens during this process that you can't control. And by being buttoned up and being focused on all these things and getting them right, we'll be in a better position to respond and adapt and adjust to all the things the world throws at us. And if you get that balance right, you know, you'll have a good execution and it all works. But you've, you've, you've got to be, in I think any of these jobs, accepting of what you can control and what you can't. But I think people that execute really well, execute well because on the stuff that they control, they're, they're really tight. You know, businesses that are well-run are tight on the stuff that you can control. We still, though, live in, in a very results-oriented world. And that is my world every night. Yeah. Right. Every night, that's your world. Every night, that is my world. <laughs> and that's a little bit different. And I'll, I'll use the example of, we're recording this on um, on Thursday morning. I use the example last night. You know, I, I I literally couldn't make a shot. Couldn't make a shot. I think I shot five for 15, but I, I missed shots that I normally make. And I, I'm, you know, driving home last night and I'm in my mind replaying every shot. I'm thinking about, what did, did I do anything differently? What, what, what did the last three days look like? And I'm literally, I'm like, no, I, I ate well, I slept 10 hours, I took my naps, I did my pregame, you know, I'm going through all these things and those are the things that I can control. So I, I, I still get so caught up, right, in the actual results, like to the point where I'm a little sick yeah. to my stomach. Yeah. Um, well, you can't control why one night, you know, you're five, <laughs> you're five for 15 and one night you're 10 for 15. Well, let's and, hope so. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's, 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 I mean, that's a really interesting thing in the context of what you do. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's a game of inches and some of it's in your head, oh, you yeah. know, at a moment in ways yeah. you can. I mean, it's, it's, you know, golf's a very, very different sport, but I, you know, I, I, you know, I think about, you know, a professional golfer, you know, that's standing on the green and has to putt. Right. Okay. And the fraction of difference, by the way, taking a jump shot is no different. The fraction of difference and what's going on in your fingertips, the way you come off the ground, the way your hands and your arms are positioned, what you're looking at, what's distracting you, how all of that, you know, at the margin yeah. can affect, you know, the arc of the ball. Yeah. It's, it's, that's a very tough, that's a very, that's a very tough thing to always get right. What you're, what you're describing is, is something I talk about a lot and that's uh, mastering mechanics. Yeah, mechanics. In, in imperfect environments. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I believe that in what you do, there's an element to that on a day-to-day basis Absolutely. as well. Absolutely, you master, and 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 again, you know, I I I think it's it's similar. We're talking about the same things. Mastering mechanics, that's actually something you can control. Right. But there's stuff going the, around the you. Imperfect environment. The imperfect is, environments around you, you can't, you can't control. Yeah. control. So, 
Um, you know, using the same example, you're getting a company ready. You can control all the things, but you can't control that the day you actually are going to go public, the market's down 3%. Yeah. Okay. It's going to affect your result. You're not going to be happy with the results, <laughs> but you couldn't, you couldn't control that, but you've just got to, you got to respond to it. You're fairly new in your, in your new role. October 1st, I believe that's, right. that's when the official right. sort of succession took place as, 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 you know, with your new role as CEO, but you obviously will get caught up in results. That's just oh, the nature. Oh, we are incredibly results oriented yeah, that's just here. the nature yes. of your job. Yeah. Um, and so how, how do you, how do you manage expectations? How do you manage, ex- not just ex- externally, sure. of course, the board and shareholders and all that stuff, but, but also internally. It's, it's, it's all, it's all linked together. And I just, one of the things that's, that's different is, you know, we're incredibly results oriented, but here we're results oriented over a period of time. So my job is to deliver good returns for shareholders over a period of time, not every night. (laughs) And by the way, there's, there's a, there's a real big difference to that because, you know, we'll have good days and bad days. Um, but we get to put a plan in place that says over the next three to five years, here's what we're going to do. And here's what we think we can deliver. And then we're going to be held accountable to it. But that's very different than what'd you do today? What'd you do tomorrow? What'd you do the next day? And, you know, I think one of the things, you know, that's evolved in our business, our business was a business that was very much day-to-day opportunity set. And as the business has evolved, it's now a business that requires more investment, more planning, more technology. And those things are things that you have to do adhering to a plan to deliver over a period of time. And so, look, one of the things I'm very focused on, and this is something that any new CEO focuses on, on any large public company, is what's our plan going to be? And how are we going to articulate it and communicate it? And then how's the world going to hold us accountable for delivering on it over a period of time? And that's something our leadership team is very focused on right now. All right, uh, David, I want to be uh, respectful of your time. I really appreciate you. Unfortunately, we did not get to talk about wine. <laughs> that's okay. We can, we can find another yeah. time in the summer to, <laughs> yeah, to, to sure. have a glass of wine together. Uh, and, uh, but really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, this, is, this has been a really fun conversation for me. Uh, thank you so much. Well, I, I really appreciate you doing this. And really fun for me. And great to see you again. And yeah. you know, look forward to continuing the discussion. Yep. Thanks a lot, JJ. Right. Yes. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the JJ Reddick podcast. It was an absolute pleasure to have Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon on. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Uh, we will be back soon with a mailbag pod. Tommy and I have really enjoyed doing these mailbag pods. This will be our third one. You can send in all of your questions and comments to The Ringer, and I look forward to answering your questions on the next mailbag pod. Also, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy Hanukkah, all the good stuff. I look forward to talking to you guys soon.